Hello and welcome to Unframed, conversations about the arts on CFCR 90.5 FM in Saskatoon and streaming live around the world at cfcr.ca. I'm your host, Michael Peterson. My guest tonight is Nick Semenoff. Nick is an artist responsible for a number of innovations in printmaking, from waterless lithography to the use of copy toner. Since 1992, Nick has been the artist-in-residence at the University of Saskatchewan. Prior to that, he taught printmaking in the Department of Art and Art History. He has toured to a number of locations throughout the world to discuss the innovations of printmaking that he is behind, including Japan and the United Kingdom, and Nick currently has an exhibition on at the Rouge Gallery until October 31st. Nick, it's good to have you on the program. Well, thanks for having me. So your journey into art wasn't necessarily a linear path. You started in commercial art. Well, after high school, actually, uh, even though I had been interested in art, I was realized that there was no way to make a living, and I didn't have the money to go to art school at the university. It was right after the war. There was, it was full of soldiers, and there wasn't really much of an art department here. So to make a living, I uh, took an accounting course, and I became an accountant for three years, and I found that that was not very creative. And if you get too creative in accounting, <laughs> that's not uh, the future for your life. So, but a, a friend opened an advertising agency and asked me to be an artist, but the firm didn't last very well. Uh, this was in the 50s. But we had done some work at Modern Press. I met the salesman from Modern Press, and he asked me if the art department had got in touch with me because they had liked my work and they were getting a big two-color press and would need artists in the future. So I went down and I ended up starting my apprenticeship as a lithographer artist at uh, Modern Press. And in a way, that was where I really learned to draw because I had to be drawing very accurately quite often. And uh, so I basically was paid while I practiced drawing and getting the skill of drawing. And that is one skill I, I've had, I think. And because I worked as a commercial artist, any artwork I did for myself was for myself. I didn't have to worry about selling. And that's why I never really had very many shows, sort of thing. Fair enough. And then you moved into television production as an art director for CTV. Yes. And then you also worked for the extension division at the university. And it was during that time that you started to move back to printmaking again. Well, after I had worked at the printing plant for three years, television was coming to Saskatoon and they were looking for artists to become art director of the television station. And they had three people, and I was the one that was chosen, so I went to work for this new industry which I knew nothing about, and uh, I'd never seen television, but we had a steward who had uh, worked for RCA who would start the television stations, get them going, and with his help, we got the station going, and I was there for nine and a half years. And I left the television station and uh, was uh, freelancing. And this was a good time for freelancing because it was the uh, centennial for Canada and the 50th for Saskatchewan. There was a lot of building. So I did a lot of architectural photography. And I uh, was asked if I could build uh, models. And I did models of buildings. 
and I did the historic models and uh, displays. And then I did some work for the extension division. And that's how I got hired eventually because all the building projects were ending and all the architects were sort of going out of business. <laughs> and I was working as, uh, because of my background in printing and in television, I was a media specialist uh, for uh, doing educational programs and uh, things for the university. And one day I was walking uh, back from the library back to the extension division, and that was going past the office of the printmaking, and Chuck Ringness uh, came out, and obviously he knew who I was, and he asked me to, to talk to me, and he asked me to use the facilities. And I had learned, uh, I had become very interested in lithography when I worked at a, a printing plant, because originally it was taking a, a stone, and you're taking, you know, Centerfelder was putting printing from a bloody stone, and that really interested me. But I learned how to make plates, you know, photo plates and everything. But I was able to get some, uh, some small stones in Winnipeg, 10 by 12, and I was able to get enough information, and I learned how to do traditional lithography on my own. And it was a real uphill struggle, but I, I learned traditional lithography. Sure. And then when you were starting to work in the university printmaking lab there? Yeah. When Chuck asked me to actually work, he prepared a large stone for me, and I did my first image, and it suddenly there was new materials and everything. It didn't turn out as good as I had hoped, but I ended up with an addition, and suddenly here was this nice big 22 by 30 images that was uh, really much more fun than the smaller stones that I used. So I started to use the facilities at the university, and I started working with Polaroid materials when I was teaching an art class for recreational art, and I wanted to have a, something that would open the people's eyes to color and everything, and I had produced a bunch of slides that were made from cellophane between glass, and they'd be folded over, and then you polarized your light, and then you used uh, another polarizer to change it. And the, your, on your screen, the, the colors would be very colorful, and it would change from, uh, from one to the other. And I s decided to do some flat work, and at uh, that time there was cibachrome, which is a, a positive-to-positive -positive system, and I produced a number of cibachromes, and uh, they were exciting, but uh, nothing, uh, nothing special, I, I thought. But I did write an article for Leonardo, a referee journal, on the use of polarized light. Now I, I had done a, an opening for one of my shows, television shows for the university, which used polarized light and everything. And uh, I uh, had that article accepted. And I eventually built my own press at home, and I started to do a lot of research at home on lithography. Well, sure, and you were mentioning that one of the interests for yourself was moving away from some of the dangerous chemicals that were being used. And at that time, I, there wasn't as much of a focus on that as there is now. So, <laughs> No, at first it, it, it wasn't. Uh, I, just, I just knew there was a lot of solvents being used right. and everything. But one sabbatical had gone 
to uh, see what commercial process that could be taken and used in fine art because I had a commercial lithography background and I ended up at Tanamarant and I ended up at a number of places and getting some information. Towards the end of sabbatical, when I re- realized that you could use toner, just the dry powder toner by itself, I published again in Leonardo Reference Journal, and I ended up, uh, you know, sort of become known for that. Toner now is used all over the world, you know, and yes. everything, and especially silk screeners love it more so than I think uh, the etchers or lithographers. It has become a very common and accepted material now within yeah. printmaking. And so this was the first really sort of major innovation that you've made. Uh, yeah, toner was the uh, first major innovation. And I was invited to go down to uh, New York and give uh, workshops at Ken Tyler, who is a very known uh, collaborative artist. And I was walking by the Art Students League, and so I walked up there, and uh, I forget the guy's name. He's a very well-known etcher, but he was, he, he was a teacher. And uh, I told him I was uh, on my way to uh, give a workshop at Ken Tyler. And, and he says, look, come with me. And he, he took me to the director of Art Students League. And he told me that what I was going to do with Tyler. And she says, well, you'll be back on Saturday. I says, yeah. She says, I'm going to organize a workshop for uh, all the lithographers in New York that want to come, you know. At one o'clock, uh, I went back to the New York studios, and there was about a hundred artists. And at first, I was really very concerned. You know, these these a lot of these are really good printmakers and everything collaborated. And what am I doing here and everything? And, just, and getting up in front of that group, and then suddenly I realized none of them know this. I'm the expert <laughs> here. <laughs> And that, that gave me the courage to uh, go up and uh, present the thing. And it became very popular in uh, New York very quickly. Well, it's great. And like you say, it was something that was new. And then from there, the second major innovation was waterless lithography. Yeah. So can you tell me a bit about the process of uh, de- H- developing How I that? got there? Well, because I was using uh, toner on, in my traditional lithography, I had heard about 3M uh, having waterless, they have developed waterless lithography for the commercial industry. And a firm in Saskatoon had tried it and it didn't work very well. And I had been doing some repairs at my house and I had caulked uh, the windows with silicon. And then when I went to paint with oil paints, I was quite surprised how the oil paint just was rejected by the silicon. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder if, if, if this caulking silicon could be used and everything. And I uh, meant to try it, but I never, never really did. Then I got a phone call from New York, and they said, uh, Tamarand in Albuquerque is having their symposium, and they're going to be teaching uh, waterless. They says you should be the one that would be doing the demonstration for uh, uh, the toner, or not, not the waterless, for the toner process. So I uh, went down to Tamarand uh, in the morning. 
uh, there was Jeff Ryan, and he had been uh, working with Tory waterless plates, their commercial plates, because 3M couldn't make those process work. They sold their patents to Tory in Japan, and Tory, within two years, had solved all the problems. And they were back to Europe and to the United States selling plates and everything. Jeff was working with his Tory plates that he was getting for nothing because Tory, uh, out of a, a package of 25 uh, on any run, they'd take one out and they would uh, test it if it met the standards. Then they'd let that whole run go. So now they had a package of 24 that they'd give <laughs> to, to, to interested artists and everything, and he was getting the, this thing. Anyway, he was so secretive about this process, and they'd ask him questions. He says, I'm, I'm not liberty to say, and everything. And on my way home, I started thinking, you know, I'm uh, a silicon that I was uh, using. So the second day when I got home, I went and I did a, a toner image, and I diluted some uh, silicon that I had, because I had learned how to dilute it because for another, some, some jewelry processes I was using it. And I really diluted it. And my first image really did come out. You know, I figured out that I had to use acetone to wash out the toner and everything. And my first image was uh, not a 100% success, but it was really on the way to, you know, sure. something. And basically started my, another sabbatical now, my second sabbatical. And I had applied to how toner can be used in cell screening, and that was my project. Okay. And uh, I found that ordinary uh, cell screening, if I did a toner exposure on a screen, uh, I could only get about four, five, six, and the pigments would pl plug the, uh, the, uh, the the screens. So you couldn't get a fine detail. Yeah, you couldn't get a uh, you know, fine detail. You know, then you have wash out your screen and you'd actually do more harm than the sprinting. And so by this time, I had done some of these experiments. So when I was at uh, Tamaran giving the demonstration to about 230 printers on, on how to use toner. And I told them that I was already invited to work at the uh, Art Students League, but I said, is anybody here interested to, to work with silkscreen and toner? You know, just send me a note. And Jim Kraft at Albuquerque sent me some of his experience, so I went down there and I worked with him. And we realized that the ordinary screen colors that are being they're too heavily pigmented they're too, they're too to be opaque and while we were down there he used transparent oil uh, I mean solvent based but he used uh, pigments that are very finely ground very pure so there is no filler in it so that's how you know uh, the track colors and he mix all the colors and that was basically uh, the, the the work we did in okay. Albuquerque. No kidding. Yeah. So when I came back to Saskatoon, I suddenly uh, realized we're still working with solvents, 
I knew that there was, there was water-based cell screening, and I tried it, but it, it plugged it too, too well. But I realized that the Japanese have been printing with wallpaper or uh, starch paste for hundreds of years. So I introduced that into uh, the art department. No kidding. And suddenly we got a way of solvents from uh, screen printing. Right. Uh, at the same time, I was working on uh, two, two projects. My <laughs> official one, which was the silk screen, but I came up with a toner process uh, and uh, within uh, my first uh, kind of, uh, well, within a month of my first experiments, I was actually printing editions with uh, waterless. And so you started to develop this waterless lithography as well. That was, was it the same as the one that was being used in Tamarind or was it? Or? Oh, it's completely different. Okay. Tamarind, all they used was uh, the com- commercial plates and it was completely photo plates. Okay. See, you you could draw on a, a positive on a mylar and expose it, and you know you would get that way, but uh, you couldn't draw directly on the plate and everything. And I found materials, water soluble right. materials, and you know alcohol soluble mm. materials and stuff, and I developed the process that basically I have not seen any improvements from anywhere, and it's interesting that South American Spanish people seem to really start to use a lot of waterless huh. and my processes. Interesting. Well, we'll move from there to talk a bit about your current exhibition. As I mentioned, you have an exhibition at the Rouge. Yes. And this is both some newer work as well. Yes. Yes. It's newer work going back to my p- polarizing, you know, and now with a digital camera and everything, it's so easy, you know. And I have a little light box and I use cellophane and the panes of glass to keep the cellophane flat. And I use it, the, the image starts uh, on uh, what's a four by five size. And then I uh, blow it up and work sure. on it and Photoshop and everything. I could print it out with uh, wide format printers and I went to a couple of uh, places in the town. I have a Hewlett Packard wide format printer that will go 24 inches wide but black is pigmented but the colors are dyes and they're not considered permanent. Right, right. So I went to uh, a couple of places and they printed out pigmented uh, and they're dull in comparison to uh, the dye colors. So what I decided I ordered a bunch of positive plates, and I'm working with CMYK. And just for listeners that may not be aware, really what you're talking about is breaking the image into the four colors that a traditional printer would use, but then printing those each by hand? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yellow, magenta, and cyan, and black. That's, uh, I know why they call it K. And I find that I, I calibrate my monitor and I should print out of my CMYKs, that would uh, be perfect, but they're not. Huh. And I really have to adjust the colors, and I, and I actually sometimes have to add another color because it just isn't the same thing as on the, on the monitor. The thing is, what I'm getting are interesting images. Even if I have to adjust, you know, put a fifth color on, 
that's fine. I, I, can, I can do that, you know, and, uh, sure. and I alter it and everything. In fact, I think they're more interesting than the straight, uh, if I just uh, printed it out on a, on a printer, I think these are more interesting. So then you're separating this image that's coming from this digital image into four colors and then yeah. printing those by hand, like yes. one at a time uh, through I the lithopress. Waterless plates. Right. Yeah. But you also mentioned that some of these images at Rouge are also where you're printing even more colors than that, you were saying. Yes, there will be more and more. I haven't been able to get away with just four. And, but you said some of these will get up to like 10 or 12 colors for some well, of these? The fact is, in my waterless, I've been using the back of the plates because they, they're smoother. I'd use the front of the plates for, and then uh, use the back, and I'd recycle them over and over and over again. Right. What you're using is a fine aluminum grain plate, correct? And so it's generally a machine to a very fine texture, as you say, on the front, but you're actually then by hand roughing up and creating a texture on the back that you're printing on? I don't rough it up very much. Okay. You know, because... Uh, commercial plates are smooth because that's where they get the best detail, you know. Okay. But they are all photographic, you know. I've noticed on some of them too, there is a toner wash, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Yes, I yeah. I'll just take a, a piece of mylar and I uh, do a toner wash, and I have ways of keeping within a border, an edge, sharp edge border, and I'll uh, add it, to, you know, because it just needed more texture. Sure. Yeah. Well, and it gives it a distinctive lithographic look as well, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of the image composition, what are you, sort of, how are you forming these images? <laughs> the thing is, I, I've always been interested in color and textures. And I've also been interested in classical music, you know, which is very abstract. And like I said, I was, worked as a commercial artist. I had to draw very realistic. Uh, things you know, and uh, and I could draw it, but when I was doing my own stuff, I was you know being much more abstract. I've done a lot of landscapes, but they're abstract in the way I use the materials. There, you know, you got to recognize this is a tree and this is grass, that's clouds and everything, but it's uh, the brush stroke or the way the paint been uh, been applied, which is the abstract thing. But uh, the latest waterless stuff, they're just pure abstract work, you okay. know. And they, you just look at it for form, shapes, colors, and design, and uh, that's all. Well, and as you mentioned, just the colors themselves have such a vibrancy to them. And then you've got that waterless texture on top, and it does create a very unique image that you're Yeah, I, I think it's interesting... I for have years been saying that when I was 25, I knew what art was. <laughs> Today, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I go to, on the internet, places like artsy.net and everything, they, and they have galleries and what's being shown. And I look at it and I just shake my head. And the prices they ask for, $30,000 for stuff that I probably, I would fail if they were my student, you know. <laughs> it's changed a little, and the, some yeah. of the standards have changed too. I, there seems to be no standard. And uh, Hughes, the art critic for the New York Times, uh, who just uh, died recently, he, he was one of, I think, the best art critic I've ever, you know, if, uh, he did an art series on the television and everything. And 
uh, he was, uh, did a BBC uh, program about what, where art was now compared to, you know, what it was even uh, 20, 30 years ago. Sure. And uh, all, I think it all started with uh, Marshall Duchamp. Okay. Because he didn't like Matisse. He didn't like Picasso. He didn't like anything. So what he did was he went outrageous. Like he, uh, what he would put up for, as art, you know. There's only one uh, Duchamp that like is a nude descending the su- 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 uh, staircase. I think you may see it. It's very, very, it's a cubistic, but it's very, 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 very well done. But his other stuff is, it's for the shock effect. It's not lasting. It's not. Yeah, yeah, sort of thing. And I've told some of the students to go uh, to the BBC, and they have a series. It's called Goldsmith, but is it art? And it's about Goldsmith College. And if you go through it, you really see what art, how art is being trained. You know what what is considered art, and at kind of a at the closing of the year, they had a show and everything, and the director of the school says, he says, remember, the most important thing, get their attention. Huh. And that's what I think art seems to be about. You know, there's so many artists graduating it every year. I asked my students once, how many do they think graduated in North America uh, in any one year, and guesses were all between four to five thousand. And uh, there used to be a magazine, American Artists, and in April they used to have a yellow section, and they would have all the universities and art schools, and what they graduated and everything. And it was just a very, just a real large section. And I would take every tenth or every fifth and add them up and then average them. And the average was 60,000. Wow. Yeah. Two years ago, New York Times had an article that some of those professions you don't want to get a degree in. Art and journalism was one of them. And art was the over 100,000 graduates with their BFAs a year. Right. Like you say, at that point, it's almost like the salons come again where you need to get the attention. Yeah, you get your attention. And uh, I haven't done, I have not done that to get their attention. It's just that I just use the materials and the techniques and the technology to, you know, to get something that I find pleasing, you know, and uh, I hope that people find pleasing enough to, to... purchase the work you know well certainly and as you mentioned this can be seen at the rouge gallery on until october 31st thank you for coming on the program nick this has been oh very welcome thank you for having me well thank you and if people are interested in learning more about some of the processes you've spoken about you have a website i have two websites you have two websites (laughs) and very interesting all you have to do is put my name into google there you go and uh, they'll come up You've been listening to Unframed Radio on CFCR 90.5 FM. I just want to take this moment to remind you that Artists for Alternative Radio, one of our fundraisers here, is coming up on November 17th. 
In particular, for any artist interested in contributing a work to the auction, the deadline to submit your form is this coming Monday, the 26th. Now, if you do submit a work and it is sold at auction, you can receive up to 50% of your price, so it's not you giving away the art for free, unless you so chose. Rather, you will receive a portion of the sale price. For more information, you go to cfcr.ca. Again, I am Michael, and this has been Unframed Radio on CFCR 90.5 FM.